And now, podcasting from a two-person hot tub, high atop the Butterfield Park water tower, it's the E-Town Lowdown, created by Robbie and Rick. And now, your handsome hosts, PK, Rick, and their highly paid intern, Malort. Welcome to another special edition of the E-Town Lowdown COVID-19 pandemic. Today is Tuesday, February 9th, 2021, and my guest is Dr. Michelle Mazier. She is the co-chair of the COVID-19 Incident Command at Elmhurst Hospital, and she is also the medical director of the Immediate Care and Walk-In Clinic, and glad to have you with us today, Dr. Mazier. How are you? I'm good. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, I know you were a guest of a few months back. You uh, filled in for uh, Pam Dunley, so we, uh, we're going to ask you some really difficult technical questions today, <laughs> at least from our perspective, maybe not from you. But first of all, could you give us a little update on COVID census as it relates to the hospital patients? Sure. I think we have good news to report on that front. So uh, today, our inpatient uh, COVID positive patients are at 32 Three of those patients are on ventilators. Um, we have a total of 164 deaths throughout. Um, to put that in perspective, DuPage County has had 73,832 positive cases with 1,220 deaths total. And then in the state of Illinois, 1.15 million positive cases with 21,779 deaths. Um, I think probably the number I'd like to focus more on is that we have discharged 1,451 COVID patients and a 97% recovery rate. Are um, quite a few of the patients that um, are in the hospital now, other than the, obviously the ones on vents, are they in ICU or a lot of them in regular rooms? So, you know, what we've noticed over time is that the, the hospitalized patients, um, for the most part, are less sick than they were back in the fall and are um, turning around quicker and getting discharged in a shorter time period. So everything, it, it seems, is heading in the right direction as we learn more about this. I'm just curious about your testing capacity and maybe how the demand may or may not have changed as more people have been vaccinated and maybe more people feel that I'm not going to get tested because I'm probably going to get the vaccine soon anyway. Has that changed much? You know, so I think it's too early to say that our testing um, is indicative of our vaccine because really, although we have many first vaccine doses given, um, we have to remember that there's the, the need for that second dose. So we have seen a decrease in our testing. I'm not sure it's related to our vaccine, though. Um, back in November, early December, we were um, doing about 870 tests a day with a 16% positivity rate. And so far in February, we're averaging about 550 tests a day with an 8% positivity rate. So again, things hopefully this is light at the end of the tunnel. Things are moving in the right direction. The general public's heard a lot about the requirement for the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines to be stored at cold temperatures, one colder than the other. So I have a question about the virus itself and the transmission of it. Does air temperature affect its ability to survive and be transmitted? So there's, there's not any definite science that 
says that the, you know, that the virus survives better in cold or better in heat. Um, but what I, I think when we're talking about society in general, the problem with it being winter is that we all moved indoors. And so we moved indoors and we let our guard down and probably don't social distance as much indoors and that kind of thing. So it just makes the virus easier to spread than when, you know, summer we're outside, uh, that kind of thing. Okay. I, I know that back in March and April and maybe even the early part of May, most experts were not pushing for the wearing of masks and obviously that's changed. And I know there was a lot of paranoia about touching surfaces that might have the coronavirus on them and, and you could catch it that way. And so my question is, is there still a very high risk of catching the virus from surfaces or does that appear to not happen in most cases? Yeah, I was joking with my husband yesterday because we brought in takeout, carry out food. And I was thinking back to March when the carryout would come in the house. I wouldn't let anybody touch it. I would take it out of the carryout, put it on our own plates, wash my hands 700 times. And yesterday I put everybody's plastic container in front of them and told them to wash their hands and eat. So I think we know that they, you know, there's not, there's less risk from surfaces, but you know, it's the same with any virus. If you're touching things and then not washing your hands and then putting your hands in your face where your mucous membranes are, you're at more risk of um, contracting, you know, whatever viral illnesses are out there. But I think what we've learned is that um, not as much of an issue as we thought in the very beginning. So that leads me to my next question. You mentioned the mucous membranes in your in your face. Um, is there evidence that you can catch this virus through your either eyes or ear canals? So eyes would be mucous membrane, and that would be uh, a potential. So eyes, nose, mouth. Um, and I guess what that goes down to, um, you know, if someone sneezed right in your face and they either, you know, if they didn't, weren't wearing their mask and you weren't wearing your mask, then you're going to be at risk of um, contracting those things. But if they have their mask on and you have their mask on, their sneeze stays for the most part in their mask, and then your mask protects yourself. So uh, those shields and glasses probably, I know you said that the masks protect you pretty well, but the shields and glasses uh, probably aren't a bad idea either, right? No, they're a great idea, and it's something that is part of our routine PPE within the hospital. Do you have any documented cases of medical professionals at the hospital catching uh, COVID from uh, patients that are COVID positive? You know, this this becomes tricky because you don't know people's, we don't always know their personal behaviors outside of the hospital. I think when we started down this path in the very beginning, our underlying goal for all of this was to make sure that we were keeping our staff and our patients safe. And so we have always had a focus on what is the latest recommendation for PPE and do we have enough of it? And I think as an organization, we've done a really great job of making sure that we have always had the supplies that we needed, even when things were getting a little scary and, you know, oh, no, we're going to be out of gowns, we're going to be out of gloves, we're going to be out of masks. We, we really were able to maintain our supplies, and I think that's why we actually have not seen a lot of transmission from patients to healthcare professionals. I feel very safe when I'm working seeing patients. Well, and uh, the general public is concerned with uh safety of the folks on the front lines with that too. And uh, 
that comforts me to know that it doesn't appear that there's been a lot of transmission because of the the uh, measures that you've taken and uh, the medical community in general. Uh, my next question um, relates to um, the guidance that you receive from whether it be the CDC or the IDPH. How does that that guidance filter down to you as co-chair of the COVID-19 Incident Command, and how do you take that information and get it out to the staff? And do you have, do you have a big committee that you work with? And, and how, how does that kind of work inside the hospital? So we do. We have a committee that, um, you know, we meet based on our needs and what's going on around us. Uh, when our vol- our inpatient volumes were high and patients were very sick and we didn't know a lot, we were meeting very regularly to make sure that we were staying on top of it. Um, we have teams that watch the most up-to-date CDC recommendations, the most up-to-date IDPH recommendations. And then I think also impressive is that we brought a group of clinicians together across the system, so both, both Elmhurst and Edward, um, and clinicians from all aspects of medicine, we, including nursing, including pharmacy. And we started a committee very early on um, so that we could make sure that we were on top of the treatment recommendations. And it is pretty incredible to watch the healthcare system uh, across the United States come together because on our committee, someone would say, oh, you know, I have a guy that I went to medical school with and he's out in Washington. I'm going to call him and see what they're doing. So the medical community really came together um, to, to share what we were learning and what we were doing that was working and what wasn't working. And then we try to communicate it in every single way that we can. I mean, we have town halls, we have email, we have department meetings, um, we have gone, you know, sent clinicians to certain floors of the hospital to help um, educate the staff on the vaccine and that kind of thing. So we're, we're really just using all of our redundant forms of communication uh, to get the stuff out when we need to. And it sounds like uh, right at the right time, the medical community is not worried about being competitive with each other and they've had a no, spirit of cooperation, right? Yes, it's been pretty impressive. Um, can you give us an idea of what the current treatments that you would typically give a COVID patient uh, that's inpatient and then kind of contrast that with the type of treatments that folks that are at home that have pretty serious symptoms, uh, how you would treat them? Yeah, I'll tell you. Um, So there are multiple medications uh, that uh, medications or treatments that can be used and a lot of them depend and vary based on Number one, how sick you are, and number two, where you are in the course of your illness. So we we know that there are antiviral medications. There are medications to try to stop the inflammatory cascade. Um, There is convalescent plasma that can be given. Those are all used primarily on the inpatient basis. I think the thing um, for your listeners to really hear about is the monoclonal antibody treatment. Um, Monoclonal antibody is a treatment that can be used for outpatients. So the indication is actually for outpatients with mild to moderate symptoms. And it's given to patients that would be considered a high risk of developing severe illness and hospitalization. So, you know, people with other conditions that would put them at risk of doing poorly if they had COVID. 
Um, it is given within 10 days. It's an infusion. And the goal of this monoclonal antibody therapy is to prevent progression to severe illness the pro and, and then hospitalization. The problem is it becomes very difficult um, to identify locations where you can actually do these infusions because what you have to think about as an organization is you're bringing in these patients who are COVID positive. Now, we all have infusion centers, but when we look at our infusion centers, our most vulnerable high-risk patients are in those infusion centers every day. So it's not a population that we can mix. So up to this point, we had been giving this um, treatment to eligible patients who just happened to uh, show up and test positive in the emergency departments. And then this past week, we were able to roll this um, treatment out to our patients that might be being seen by their primary care doctor or they're being seen in our, our immediate care center, uh, two of our immediate care centers, and we can schedule these infusions um, at our Hinsdale location. So it's really, um, it's really great for the community. It's a treatment that if you know somebody who has had it, they will tell you that the 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 course was changed dramatically in 24, 48 hours. So it's something that we're really excited about and something that we have to offer um, the community. Can you explain what an infusion is? It's not just an IV drip, correct? Yeah, it, no, it is, but it is an IV drip that um, takes some time to go in and then there's a monitoring period afterward. So it's a little more complicated than just coming in, you know, for your shot or your, you know, for your shot of penicillin or something like that. Um, and the other thing to remember is that these treatments are approved under emergency use. So they might have a, a little more guideline that we have to follow to be able to infuse them. So it just adds to the difficulty, um, the difficult process that it takes to operationalize it. So um, it, it's impressive that we're able to do that now. I know that if I were in your position, my brain at this point would be a jumbled mess with all you've had to deal with uh, over the last 10 or 11 months. And you've you've obviously become pretty familiar with the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. What at this point, if anything, do you know about the AstraZeneca and the Johnson & Johnson vaccines in terms of how to administer them, how to store them, when they may be available, and how effective they are? Um, it is incredible the amount I have learned about things that I never thought I would know about, like ultra-cold freezers. Um, but the, it, so the interesting thing, I, I probably know a little bit more about the Johnson & Johnson because that's the one that's going to be coming to the United States next, most likely. Um, the difference is it's a single shot. It can be stored in a refrigerator. So a lot of the cold-chain storage requirements that we have for, say, the Pfizer are not present with the Johnson & Johnson. Um, in what I just read that was um, published by Johnson & Johnson, they claim 85% effective in preventing severe disease. Um, and then they actually did submit their application for emergency use authorization on the 4th. So in the United States, that goes to a committee for review um, prior to being granted. So I think we'll probably learn a lot more in the next couple of weeks about the Johnson & Johnson. I think we're still a ways off from AstraZeneca. Um, it is being utilized in the UK, but the, the latest thing that I read is that we likely would not see it in the United States until March or April. Do you think that um, 
the fact that the Johnson and Johnson is slightly less effective than the others will um, influence people's decision um, and keep them from getting the Johnson and Johnson because they're going to wait till they can get another one. You know, I, I do and I don't. Um, I think that. Uh, you know, there are a good portion of the population that really just want a vaccine. Um, I think that there are those that the idea of getting one shot is going to appeal to them versus having to schedule a second shot. Um, so I, I think it's going to be interesting how that rolls out. Has your health system's um, capacity to administer vaccinations affected the supply that you've been given by either the state or the county, or is that totally unrelated at this point? So the state determines how much vaccine is going to go to DuPage County, and then DuPage County divides up their allocation among its stakeholders, which is, you know, several hospitals um, and some non-hospital groups. We work very closely with the county. Um, we meet with them every week to go over um, the numbers and what we, you know, what we're doing as far as vaccine and monoclonal antibody and our treatments and all of that. Um, our capacity right now, we have our two sites. We have our Downers Grove site, and then we're ramping up our um, Seven Bridges site. It's one of our fitness centers that we're using right now in the kids zone because it was closed. Um, I will say, uh, interestingly, DuPage County received in our last allocation 10,000, a little over 10,000 vaccine. Um, and really, if all of the stakeholders got what they what they had the capacity for, we would have needed over 50,000. So we are, you know, we are manning these mass vaccination clinics. We are ready to go. We have been strategic about how we are asking for vaccine and strategic in a way so that we have it to offer our patients, but also so that we're not having it stockpiled in a refrigerator where somebody else could be getting vaccine into people's arms rather than it sitting waiting. So it's, it's really, um, there's a lot of moving parts to operationalize this. Um, and as more vaccine becomes available, we'll be able to put it in more arms. So really, you're not you're not anywhere near your capacity in terms of supply, correct? We we have so far. So then the other thing you have to consider when you're talking about your capacity is you have to divide it into if you have a location, you have to divide it into how many first shots can you give today, knowing that in four weeks you'll be giving first shots and second shots. Mm -hmm. So it's that's that's another tricky part of the puzzle. So we actually have had our locations over the last three days at capacity, which is exactly what we want. And the other interesting thing is when you open one of these vials, they they're only there's no preservative. So you have to use the vial within several hours. And I think the thing that we're really proud of is that we have not wasted any vaccine. It's really been important for us to make sure that when we open that vial that we can give every vaccine that we can pull out of it, and we've been able to successfully do that as well. Pam had shared that um, initially you had identified approximately 72,000 patients that fall into that phase 1B that we're in right now, and I know you had also administered a, a bunch of vaccine to the healthcare workers in phase 1A. Do you have an idea quantity-wise of how many vaccines or how many folks have been vaccinated with at least 
one dose at this point, either in 1A, 1B, or together? I do. So um, just prior to this call, our total 1A vaccines were 9,703, and 1B is 7,434. So you're about 10% through that 1B, it sounds like, of the patients you've identified, assuming that 72,000 is still pretty close and hasn't changed? Exactly. Exactly. And that 72,000 patients that um, are identified, we have a pretty complex risk stratification tool that runs in our medical record, and it continuously updates. So that 72,000 number um, can change. The total at the end is, is going to likely be higher as patients move into 1B based on their risk factors. I, um, I've asked Pam several times the last few weeks about um, the general population and, and their acceptance rate of the vaccine. And I know it was kind of early. So each week I asked the same question, thinking maybe we'll have a little more information. And I know that in, among the medical staff, not the medical staff, the hospital staff in general, about 37% have elected not to get the vaccine. And I know some of those might not be eligible because of pre-existing conditions. So my question is, does that seem to be about that same percentage among the general public, maybe a third that don't want the vaccine when their their number's called? You know, I, I don't think we know yet because I think what's happening now is, you know, your first wave of people are the eager, right? So mm -hmm. they are going to sign up at every place they can get it. And when their number is called, they are coming. Um, I think probably in three or four months, we'll have a better idea of what that number really is. And as far as our, you know, we have moved into 1B, but we still recognize that there are 1A healthcare workers out there who maybe were not affiliated with a hospital system and our own employees who did not um, elect to receive the vaccine in our first campaign. So as of today, our employee number is 65%, and we anticipate that that's going to keep inching up. You know, I keep trying to extrapolate and uh, say, so we've we've given vaccines at least one dose to about a tenth of those 72,000 patients that you've identified and extrapolating out. I think that we've been in 1B for maybe three or four weeks. It, it looks like it might be nine or 10 months before 1B gets vaccinated. Do you think it's going to be that long or will it be a lot shorter? I am going to hold out hope that we are going to increase our vaccine supply and get through 1B in the spring, um, by the spring or summer. Um, but it really all hinges on how much supply we have. Okay. So, could, so you're correct. Potentially, it could be drawn out longer. So you hear a lot about these lists you can put your name on if you're in 1B to get the, you know, hopefully get on as many lists as you can. Is that what you would suggest if if you find another list, put your name on it, whether it be at a, a pharmacy or, or whatever, so that you're on as many as possible and you get that call earlier? Absolutely. I think it's important. Um, I think that wherever you have the ability to put your name on a list, I think it's important. But my follow-up to that is that if you get a vaccine at one place, I also think it's important to remove your name from the list that you put it on. So Good that, advice. Um, yeah, so there's not a lot of wasted time communicating and outreaching to people who already have the vaccine. I think it makes you know our job as healthcare providers and pharmacies and the county much easier um, if you remove yourself from lists that you don't need to be on anymore. 
And then for our own internal patient population, the thing that I would say to them is to please be patient with us. Um, it's 72,000 patients, and we have done 7,434. So it's, um, it's, it's still a lot of patients to go. The thing that everybody can do is if they are able, they can make sure that their MyChart is all in order. And then in order for the um, frontline essential workers who are part of our system to feed into the risk stratification, there's an occupation survey on MyChart that they can go in and fill out. And if they are one of the essential frontline workers that qualifies in 1B, they'll be put into that same risk stratification tool. So it's an occupation survey. That's it's an ordered. occupation survey, correct. Great advice, too. I was not aware of that, and I would guess a lot of people aren't. So thank you for that. A um, little earlier, you mentioned that the state is aware of, I think you said 1.15 million cases of COVID since this pandemic started within the state of Illinois. Obviously, a lot of those folks were asymptomatic. And I just wonder if um, the medical community has tried to estimate how many additional people, like for instance, in our state, may have it and never knew they had it or didn't report it because their symptoms were fairly minor. Yeah, I, I don't know that we're ever going to have a grasp on that. Um, there were so many people that dismissed their symptoms as, oh, it's just a little sore throat or it's just allergies. And, and so for every patient that I pick up like that, that I say, no, no, during COVID, we have to make sure it's COVID and not allergies. So for every patient like that with these mild symptoms that test positive, I wonder how many are at home saying, no, no, it's just my allergies. I, I don't know when we will ever have a grasp on those true numbers. One last thing I want to ask you, and it's it's uh, a personal question about how, you, how you're dealing with all this. And, and I think back to some of the movies I've seen over the years about these astronauts that are in training and they have all these lights going off and smoke into a simulated cockpit and they have to deal with all these things coming at them at once. And I, I think that probably, I know your, your background is as an emergency room physician and I'm guessing ER physicians are pretty good multitaskers and are always dealing with crazy situations and do pretty well under stress. But this is a, this is a time and a a problem that I'm sure you never expected you'd have to deal with. And so I just wonder how you deal with this on a daily basis and how you relax and decompress at the end of the day, if the day does ever end. You know, it's interesting. Um, you mentioned my training and I think that training prepared me for chaos and no sleep. And so this, um, although this has been an experience unlike anything I have ever had in my career and I'm sure that I ever will have in the future, um, I think at the end of the day, I, I guess if you would have asked me six months ago, my answer would have been very different. I probably would have said that I have a much harder time decompressing and relaxing, but I feel like now we are in this place where um, my, you know, my biggest stress right now is how can I get more people a vaccine? That's, that's actually a good thing because it means we're, we're looking towards the end. Um, and I think watching the organization and the healthcare, um, healthcare organizations across the country kind of come together and band together to tackle this thing is, is really one of the things that you're just proud to be a part of it. Um, the staff at these vaccine locations, um, 
somebody cries every day because people are so happy to be getting the vaccine. Um, some sweet little old gentleman proposed to them. Um, so it's just, it's, it's a lot, there's a lot of laughter. There's people knowing that they are actually doing a really great thing for each other and for the community. So I think that's kind of what helps us get through. Well, Dr. Michelle Mazir, uh, I thank you for your time. And uh, I am certainly comforted that somebody like you is uh, in charge of this effort in our local health care system. And I promise you, like I did last time you, you joined us, that I will eventually get you an E-Town Lowdown coffee mug suitable for all types of beverages. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Rich. The E-Town Lowdown brought to you by the wonderful folks at the Elmhurst Armpit Orchestra featuring the biggest bass drum in the world at nine feet in diameter. Yes, you heard that right. Nine feet in diameter. This has been a special presentation of the E-Town Lowdown.